I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 9, same chapter we were last week. We're going to look at the first seven verses. If chapter, or last week was a looking at the entire chapter and story, we're going to zero in on the first seven verses and seek to answer some questions that the Bible does and think, hopefully, biblically about suffering. Johnny Erickson Tata, I don't know if you've heard that name, if you've been here long enough and we're listening, you've heard that name because I've mentioned her before. Johnny, J-O-N-I, last name is Tata, Erickson Tata, you can Google her or look up on YouTube and find her messages, testimony, songs. Her books are all over the place. For many, many decades now, she's been a quadriplegian. She's a writer, an artist painting, painting with her mouth. She has ministries that she's started for the handicapped, radio shows and broadcasts. She is amazing. She wrote a book, among many of her books, called A Place of Healing, Wrestling with the Mysteries of Suffering, Pain, and God's Sovereignty. During that time, she writes about how not only has she gone through decades and decades of not being able to truly move anything at all in her hands, just a little in her fingers, but her arms and her legs or walk, or sit up, but in the last several years as she wrote this, she was entering into a whole new level of agonizing daily, hourly, minute-by-minute pain. She tells a story. It was a beautiful Sunday morning, and services were over. I was wheeling my I was wheeling across the church parking lot, she says, and a a nice, young, handsome man introduced himself as David and stopped her. Are you Johnny? He asked. I smiled, yes. Oh, great, he exclaimed. I'm a visitor here, and I was hoping I would run into you today, and I've been really praying for you. Her eyes got wide. Really? What about? You're healing. I've been praying for you to get out of your wheelchair. She'd been there for 40 years by then. At that point, my spirit hesitated, she writes. David's a visitor. He came to church hoping to see me, and he wanted to see me healed. I can't tell you how many, she says. People have come through the years to conventions, to churches and street corners and shopping malls trying to see this happen in my life. But on that day, it was this young man. She said, I never refuse healing, so thank you. The guy wasted no time in getting down to business. He launched into what sounded like a prepared speech to me, she says. Have you ever considered that it might be sin standing in the way of your healing? That you've disobeyed in some way? Before I could answer, David, the visitor, flipped open his Bible, both of us still in the middle of a parking lot, and read from the Gospel of Luke, in which it said, some men came carrying a paralytic man 
on a mat and tried to take him to the house to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find their way to do so because of the crowd, they went to the roof, they lowered him onto the mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus, Luke chapter 5. He closed his Bible and reminded me that the paralyzed man in the story got healed. And I could too if I would confess my sins and have faith to believe. He added, Johnny, there must be some sin in your life that you haven't dealt with yet. I told him that my conscience was clean before the Lord. He looked a little skeptical at that. And I reiterated that I was always welcoming of prayers for healing. I thanked him for his concern, but I told him I didn't think that this was a matter of faith. I do trust in God with all my heart. For David, that just didn't add up. According to what he had always been taught as a Christian, if, if I was a Christian, and if there was no unknown sin in my life, and if I had faith that God could heal, well then, I'd be healed. Didn't God want everyone healed? Didn't Jesus want everyone well? Of course he did. It was obvious to this man. Johnny, you must lack faith. I mean, look at it. You're still in the wheelchair. Johnny tells the story, says that as I thought for a moment about the account in John 5, and I said to this man, okay, you're right about one thing, David. Right after they lowered the paralyzed man through the roof to the floor in front of Jesus, he was healed. But if you look at verse 20 of Luke 5, it says that when Jesus saw the faith of the four friends who lowered him down, the man was made well. So, don't you see? He didn't require the faith at all of the disabled man. He was looking for the faith of those who lowered them down from the roof. God doesn't require my faith for healing, but he could require yours. The pressure's off me, David. If God has it in his plan to lift me out of this wheelchair, he could use your faith. So keep believing, friend. The pressure's on you. David didn't like that point of view. Again, it wasn't according to script. It wasn't what he had been taught. According to what he had been taught, if a person wasn't healed, it had to be a problem with him or the person or with faith. Faith, however, is not the focus. The focus is always on Jesus Christ and his will for those who suffer. The story we're going to revisit this morning is the story about a blind man who was blind from birth and religious people are gathering around and probably questioning, including these disciples, the apostles that are with Jesus. And they're asking, what's wrong that God allowed and caused this to happen? Look at me in verse 1 as I read through 1 through 7. And as he passed by, that's Jesus... As Jesus passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me until while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world... 
I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So we went and he washed and he came back seeing. I want you to see Jesus in this passage. I want you to observe some things about Jesus. I'm just going to bring them to you. I have points about Jesus and how he responds to what's going on in this passage. And then I want to pull out some, I think, universal biblical truths about suffering, the questions of why and how we should respond. What is God doing? What does God say in in his word about it? First thing I want you to see is Jesus sees and Jesus cares. Long before the blind man saw Jesus, Jesus saw the blind man. The blind man will never see Jesus until Jesus gives him eyes to see. Jesus sees suffering and he moves towards it. We read in Matthew 14, 14, that when Jesus came ashore with a great crowd, he was moved to compassion on them and he healed the sick. And in Matthew 9, He saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I praise God for this. I praise God for simple truths, but profound truths when you read a story like this, that Jesus passed by and he saw the blind man. Could it be that Jesus, who sees all, knows all, is at the right hand of the Father and sees all things, sees you in your pain? The answer is he does. Do you believe that? He cares for the disabled and he cares for the, dis- the downcast. He cares for the mentally disabled and he cares for those that are, feel so dejected and in pain. He cares for those that are outcasts in society and to those who are really hurting and nobody knows. He cares about the ugly, at least the ugly to this world, or those that feel ugly, and to the dirty. And, and oh, that we could this morning, as we stop here and we see this, I hope you see Jesus seeing. Oh, that we would rejoice that he saw us and he cared for us while we were dead in our sins and in such a bad case. If you're here this morning and you feel like I don't see or think that Jesus sees me, be of good cheer. He does. I want you to know this morning that his seeing you might be right now him seeing you and drawing your heart to him as we look at this passage. The Bible says that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He cared for his enemies. You may be in pain this morning. I have to believe, one is because I'm your pastor and I know a lot of you are specifically, and even those I do not know, I know that you are carrying suffering pains, pains that you experience really from your birth, pains that you've experienced since your marriage or your parenting or since you entered into teenage years or since you experienced that crushing thing that happened in your life and you haven't got over it or things that you can't even explain and you're just miserable. Jesus sees. 
Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus deals with awkward questions. These are awkward questions. I don't know if the blind man could overhear. I kind of think that the, he, they may, the blind man didn't overhear, but who knows? He might, the blind man might have overheard. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and these disciples ask this awkward question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus deals with that. I'm thankful that Jesus does. That Johnny in the story I began with, deals with an awkward question. She, does, she handles it quite graciously. She doesn't get mad or offended. She interacts with Dave in the story and is gracious. And so Jesus in the story, when asked who sinned, he turns it into a teaching time, a discipleship moment. He's teaching these young disciples what does it really mean to understand what God is really up to in this world. He deals with the awkwardness of sinners and sufferers all of the time. Here the disciples seem pretty calloused as they ask the cause of this man's blindness. Jesus doesn't harshly rebuke, his, but he teaches his disciples. Now the point in Jesus' answer, he says, it, not that this man sinned or his parents. He's not saying this man is a sinless person and his parents are sinless. Nor is he saying, denying that because sin has entered into the world, people are born blind. And we live in a world with sickness and suffering and disease and troubling things. And it's all because ultimately sin and the sin-cursed world that we live in, he's not denying that. The disciples are wondering, there must be a cause of his blindness related to sin, right? How else could I think about this? I hope we can be thankful for God's grace to us in our folly. I hope that we can do better than those disciples, at least around those who are suffering. But also I hope that we can take opportunities when people open their mouths and say things not so helpfully and bring wisdom. I want you also to see Jesus, number three, moves from the cause of suffering to the divine purpose of suffering, for suffering. Now, I like how John Piper points this out, that the disciples, they're focusing on the cause. What caused this man's blindness? It, he's born blind. Is it in the womb he sinned? There, there were some that had this idea, in the womb he sinned, and the sin happened... It sounds strange to us, it caused his blindness or his parents were living in disobedience when he was conceived or whatever it is and that's why God's punishing parents. I mean, in, in the Bible, we find that David sins with Bathsheba, commits adultery and murder and the baby dies as a consequence of his sin, judgment, it happens. Is that what's going on here? And what Jesus does, he moves from the cause and he, he focuses on divine purpose. They have a hard time seeing how a good God would work and cause innocent people suffer this way. Jesus does not deny that God's sovereign. I want you to see this. Jesus didn't say, God has nothing to do with whether somebody's blind or not. 
That's just the effect of sin in the world or a cursed world or free will or something crazy. You know, he didn't say that. He says he doesn't deny God is in this. Friends, as we come and face suffering, one of the things we do need to understand is no matter what happens in this world, horrific whether caused by nat- what we call natural causes, natural disasters, disease, cellular stuff that takes place in our body, or wicked acts by people, ultimately God is overall and in control of all. Exodus 4.11 says, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute so he can't talk or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is a sense in which we need to understand that sin is why we suffer, okay? Sin is why we suffer. Sin that has entered this world. It is true that because sin has entered this world in Genesis chapter 3, that suffering is all around. If Adam had not fallen in the garden, this man would not have been blind. But Jesus teaches them to not look, okay, for this immediate, you got to figure this out, why this happened to, why does God do things like this? What is God's purpose in the world? God has a purpose to display his glory here. The purpose is that the works of God might be displayed through this man with the Son of Man here on the scene. God had a design purpose. It was the very purpose that we find in, we're going to see in a couple chapters later. It's the beautiful story of which God, Jesus, raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And it says in chapter 11, verse 2, that Mary was anointed, anointed, who anointed the Lord and wiped the Lord's feet, had a, had a brother named Lazarus, friend of Jesus. And the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, would you come? The one you love, this Lazarus, he's ill. But when Jesus heard it, he says, this illness will not lead to death. Well, Jesus knew he was going to die and he was going to raise him. But he says, this illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through him. So what we find in this story is Jesus saying, okay, I'm not going to answer, and let's just not go to all of the causes here of what it is I want to answer. God has a, a divine purpose, and that is to display his glory, and I want you to see that. Now, I, I just want to have a note. I want to give you a note here. Um, if you're talking with somebody that's going through agonizing suffering, it might be, it could be a lot of things. It could be they're not able to have children, and that's really painful, so painful. Or it could be they have disabled children born from birth. Or it could be that they lost a loved one and they're devastated. Or it could be a divorce. It could be just depression or discouragement or things among young people that are just, they're just hurting. We are, we're gonna, in this sermon, we're going to see God's ultimate purpose is to allow that, is to bring that suffering so that you will display God's glory. But in the moment of talking with somebody in that deep pain, the first thing that you should do, should not do, is to go, oh, do you want to know God's divine purpose? He wants to glorify himself. So why don't you be encouraged now? You have no more pain, right? That's not going to work. And it's not comforting and helpful. 
it's going to be more of a listening and loving and caring and over time, continually helping them see the goodness of God and the grace of God and the power of God and sometimes the healing and delivering of God in their life. I want you to see number four about Jesus. Jesus alludes to suffering that will surpass all other suffering. I want, in, this, in this chapter, in these verses, as I stared at them a little bit, I was like, you know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is forecasting suffering. The disciples ask, why does he suffer? Is it sin? And as Jesus answers that, Jesus is going to say, the works of God are going to be displayed, and we need to do the works of God. But as he says that, he, he foreshadows something that's coming, and it's the suffering that will surpass all other suffering, and it's his own suffering. He says, we must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one will work. While it is day? What does that mean? Meaning it's going to be night. He's going to leave. He's going to go away. While the light of the world is here, but the light of the world is going to go away, he's going to go, he's going to, go to the cross, he's going to, and then he's going to go back to the Father. And what Jesus is foreshadowing, he's saying, he said this in chapter 8, I'm going away, you'll seek me, and you'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you can't come. And when the Son of Man is lifted up, you'll know that I am truly the Christ. I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority. As the, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Why? To die and to suffer. And in, in the midst of this suffering, we, we stop and we ponder and say, in the midst of our reflections and questioning of why suffering and the glory of God is Jesus coming to us and ministering to us and saying, he's going to suffer and that suffering will be, will surpass any human suffering that has ever happened as he lays out on a cross naked, bloodied, and rejected by the Father of whom he has eternally loved and had union with because he takes upon us, upon himself, our sin. And it will surpass, it surpasses all suffering in that it is for the sins of the world, whoever turns away from themselves and looks to him, he will rescue. In this story of sin and suffering, Jesus knows he will suffer and he will bring the greatest fulfillment of suffering, the glory of God in the salvation of you and me in the world. The last thing I want you to see about Jesus is that Jesus displays God's glory in his words and his actions. You saw it. You Behold the glory of a, a life-giving light of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he follows it up by taking mud like God takes the dust of the earth and he makes man in Genesis 1 and 2. He shapes him from the dust and breathes into his life and makes him a living soul. So the creating power of the God of the universe who has become man, Jesus Christ, reaches, spits, and makes mud, puts it in his eye, and gives life to his eyes so that he can see. And he sees. And God's glory is put on display. Now, I want us to think here for a minute, what does this mean for us? 
What are some truths for sufferers? What are truths for us living in a suffering world? I, I wrote down, you could write down a lot more than this. I wrote down five. I'm not going to take a long time on these. Number one, we will suffer some more than others. Friends, you know this. We know this. We will suffer, and some are going to suffer more than others. Job, who lost more than anyone on this earth other than Adam, Eve, and the second Adam, Jesus. Job said, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Jesus said in John 16, we'll get there, I've told you these things so that you may be at peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peter writes, beware, don't be surprised when you have fiery trials in your life. They'll test you. Don't act like it's a strange thing happening to you. We all will suffer. We live in a suffering world. We will, whether we are born with it or we acquire it, whether it comes from our own actions or the actions of others or from parents or from other difficulties that just seem sometimes so random, we will suffer some more than others. We trust God. Number two, we often will not know the cause of our suffering, but we always know who's in charge and his ultimate loving purpose. Friends, there's going to be a lot of times, I don't know why God took mom so early or dad so early or my spouse or why, why this marriage just fell apart like it did or I don't know why I have this cancer. Is it because God is cursing? Am I, am I cursed? Am I, why is this taking place in my life? Why can I have children? Why? Why are my children going this way? And it's so, so painful. Sometimes God will give us insight. Sometimes we'll reason things out and we'll go, oh, that is why this is happening. And God's going to give us the grace as we face that cause. But many times we won't have a reason of cause, but we can always know there is a purpose, a loving purpose ultimate purpose by a God who is in charge. We might jump to the questions of why is God punishing me or does God hate me? Is God even out there? God is out there. He does love and he does discipline us. He has shown us in his word that he works all things for the good of his people, in order to display his glory. You see, God's ultimate goal, just like in the story of the blind man, he's born blind so that people could see the power of the healing power of the light of the world. And that is the most important thing for people to truly see. And it will liberate them. And in fact, that is the most amazing life-giving purpose that this blind man can have and he had and he continued on to have is to display the one, I was blind, but now I see, I believe. And he worshiped at the end of this story in this chapter. In this chapter, God has a purpose for our pain. 
I want you to think about what your pain is right now, whatever your trial, your afflictions, the things that are right now just overwhelming you. You might not know exactly why this is a cause in your life. Why, why me? Why me? The, the Psalms allow you to cry out and say, oh God, how long? God, why are you doing this? He doesn't always answer, but he allows us to just groan to him. Why did my parents do this? Why this cancer? Why don't we have children? Why these children? Why is this going on? Guy, why, why these parents? But God, please help. In this story, he healed the man. A lot of times God doesn't heal, but instead shows his glory in a different way, which is what I want you to see in the next point. Number three, our suffering is a unique way, a unique opportunity. I would say uh, that unique, it's, it's so special, it won't happen any other way, to display God's glory, which is always God's loving plan for our life. God has a plan for our life that is so much bigger than ourselves and it is to display his glory and suffering is a very, very special and unique way and it is hard. The blind man in this chapter displays God's glory because he was blind and God came and healed him. Same with the man in Lazarus. When Lazarus dies, he's in the tomb for four days and God wants to show that his power is, so he has Jesus raise him from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. That, that's clear. Wow, God's glory, God's glorious. He's powerful. His words change and bring life. But there's other ways in which God puts his display of his glory, his goodness, his grace, his power when he doesn't heal us. Like in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, I prayed over and over again, at least three seasons, that God would take away an affliction. He called it a thorn in the flesh. He said, I prayed, and, and who is more godly in the New Testament, more prayerful, more faith-filled than the Apostle Paul by this point? And he says, I prayed three times that God, three seasons of time, that God would remove this. Maybe he, it was accompanied by extended fasts as he cried out to God, oh God, take this from me. It is so hard. It is so painful. We don't know what it is. Maybe because God wants us to Fill in the blank for what is it for you in your life? Something that you wish God would take away or God would give you that you don't have. And he says, but God's answer to me was, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I think it means it is displayed in your weakness because you're weak and you're going to get strength from me and everybody knows it's not going to be you, but it's me and I'll get the glory and you're going to get the help. And in that process, you'll grow to know me and trust me and depend on me and find that the greatest joy and sufficiency is found nourished in me. Paul, no. The answer is no, because I love you more. I care for you, and I want to give you grace. And I want to, in that grace, display my power, my grace that is sufficient. Paul says, here's the conclusion that I've come to. I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so God's, the power of Christ would rest upon me. So I'm content when I'm weak, 
when I get insulted, when I have hardships and persecutions and calamities, when I have calamities, I will rejoice in God using my weakness so he gets the glory and he's shown as strong, not me. Our suffering is an opportunity. Oh, this is hard truth. It's, who can attain to this? Who can actually handle this, embrace this, unless they really believe that he's the light of the world and he's the true satisfaction? He's really what our soul was meant to. And he's saying, I'm, I'm using this to show me in your life. God is about lovingly transforming our values to to shape to have the right goals in life. We are wired to have our goals to be comfortable, to have in this life a pain-free existence, to be in control of everything. You want that? I do. I want to be in control of things. I want to have a pain-free existence. And I want comfort. And God says, those are wrong values to drive your life. They won't satisfy you. You were made for something bigger and better. And it's the glory displaying who I am. And it's going to happen the most clearly is when you are in pain and you trust me. When you are without anything and you rely on me. When you are weak And I show myself strong when others look and say, how can you still have joy? You have joy. How do you get that? It's because of another power, another source. If all we experienced was comfort, prosperity, and full control of our lives, non-Christians would look at us and go, I know why you're satisfied and content and happy. You have all these nice things. I would be too if I had all those things. It's when we don't have those things and there is a grace upon us that is different, unexplainable to the world, that God really gets glory. I I commend to you a book that really helped me many years ago. It's called The Red Sea Rules. I've mentioned it to you before. This book speaks to this truth. And in rule rule number two, he says, be more concerned about God's glory than your relief in the midst of your struggles. Really helpful. Number four, two more. Suffering in this life is a foretaste of eternal judgment or a part of our discipleship ending with eternal joy. I, I, I know that my words are many right now and you might be moving towards the end of the sermon, but would you just focus on this for a minute, all of you? Suffering in this life is only a foretaste of how bad hell will be for some of you. Some of you, you're suffering on this earth. You've never had it so good. Hell is real. God's judgment is great. He will punish all those who do not receive forgiveness in Christ by accepting his perfect forgiveness and sacrifice. And he will judge us forever and we will rightfully be judged if we have never received his forgiveness. And so all suffering on earth for anybody that has not been forgiven is only experiencing the foretaste of how bad it will really get in eternal judgment. 
An old Puritan said this, consider Christian, you who really are saved, that all your trials, all your troubles, all your calamities, think about what they are right now in your life, your miseries, your crosses and your losses, which you meet in this world is all the hell you'll ever have. Here and now you have your hell. Hereafter you shall, you shall have your heaven. This is the worst of your condition. The best is yet to come. Yet this is not true for those who are without Christ, but is a foretaste of judgment. Oh, would you hear that? Would you, I pray that you are, it gets you really fearful, really troubled by the Holy Spirit so that you would find refuge in the only comfort in life and death, Jesus Christ. Could I warn you, for those who are without Christ, it won't get better, but it'll only get worse. If your life is comfortable right now in your relationships or with your money or with your health, it's as good as it will ever get. If your life is comfortable, that's not necessarily good if it keeps you from thinking, keeps you thinking that you're fine and that you're comfortable without Christ. And I pray that he will convict you of the Holy, by the Holy Spirit and you'll see that Jesus is the only comfort and the only treasure and the only thing worth living, including displaying his glory. But I also say in this statement, or it's a part of our discipleship ending with eternal joy. God loves all his children. He never disciplines us, allows us to suffer unless it's absolutely needed. Not an ounce more. And someday he will wipe away all our tears. He brings suffering in our lives and afflicts us in order to disciple us and to discipline all his children of whom he loves. I have five children, and I have learned that any good parent must discipline their children or they hate their children. They're raising children who will suffer the consequences of not being disciplined. God's corrections are our instructions. He lashes us, but it's our lessons. He scourges us, and there are schoolmasters. By afflictions, and this is Thomas Brooks, by afflictions, troubles, distresses, and dangers, the Lord teaches his people to look upon sin as the most loathsome thing in the world and to look upon God and holiness in him truly as the most lovely thing in the world. By affliction, by suffering, the Lord teaches his people to sit loose from this world and to be prepared for heaven. By suffering, God shows his people that this life is vanity, emptiness, weakness without him. Oh, that God would help us. The last point I want to bring to you is Jesus Christ. Oh, help, help me, Lord, right now. Jesus Christ is the only way we can be freed to embrace this mindset. You can't do it apart from Christ. To actually say, for me to live as Christ, even if I suffer and he's put on display, that can't happen unless you see him as truly so satisfying, so good. Jesus Christ is the only way we can be freed to embrace the purposefulness of our pain, and to live joyful lives. God, 
Johnny Erickson Tata, the, the lady that's been in a wheelchair for almost all of her life, lives a joyful and painful life, displaying God's glory, but because the Holy Spirit has come and Jesus has become better to her, like we sang, Jesus is better. Bethlehem Baptist Church is the church I was kind of broke my teeth in with being a pastor for a little bit and then sent out during my seminary years to where John Piper was. They had a ministry for disabled people and two fathers with their wives started this ministry to minister to disabled children and they wrote a vision for it. And they, they wrote in the vision statement these beautiful words that I just hope that will grip your heart. He's, they said, think about this, these are fathers helping Disabled children, including their own, who have been, many of them, disabled from birth. Our vision is that our church would display the supremacy of God in disability and suffering. We want our lives to reflect unshakable joy in the Lord that allows us to embrace a life of suffering in disability for the purpose for purpose and glory. We want to shout to everybody that life with a disability and with Jesus is infinitely better than a healthy body without him. Let me say that again. A life plagued with disability with Jesus is infinitely better than a healthy body without him. We say that with Paul, that this light momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We want this to be true as individuals and as a church, as a body. Is disability hard? They write, as fathers of children with rare dis disabling conditions, we can attest to the struggles men in particular face when their child has disability. Disability, disability is expensive financially, emotionally, and relationally. It seems neither light nor momentary. The male myth of self-determination, control, and independence is exploded in the face of needing to turn to medical professionals, social workers, and educators on issues we never dreamed of facing. To this we say, thank you, God for not allowing us to live the lie that there is anything good or worthwhile apart from you. Thank you for showing us how much we need you. The struggles our wives endure is perhaps even deeper. Here's a, just a picture, an example of someone saying, disability in my children, disability in our home, disability in my life, better with Jesus. It's infinitely better. It's, what I, it's a way to display the glory, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Dear friends, Christians, and all you who this morning are welcome to become a Christian. We're born to trouble in this world. This world always was, is, and always will be in God's sovereign, wise, powerful, and his good hands, even though sometimes it doesn't look like it. We are born unequally afflicted, and we will live unequally afflicted lives. It doesn't seem fair, some more than others. 
but God is just. God is loving, and he has sent his son who does see and who always cares. He embraced us with our awkward and foolish questions, and he comes near and he teaches us. He displays his glory in people, sometimes by delivering them through healing and raising the dead, but most of the time in this life through sustaining us in our suffering and showing that he is better than health, better than life. The sustaining grace and the growing to see the Savior Jesus Christ as more is better than health, more than wealth, more than the physical attainments this world could offer. When Jesus is our treasure, when we see him as the true light of the world, the true bread, the true satisfaction, we show it through lives of praising in pain and service in suffering. We display the works of God in unique ways that the world says he truly is a faithful Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would please help us this morning. For a lot of us, we have little sufferings, pinpricks, compared to paralysis of a life of paralysis in a wheelchair. For a lot of us, we do not have a child born blind or are born blind. But some of us might be facing those things, and so I pray that you'd help them. Help us to be the most compassionate, caring, life-giving supporters. But for us, many of us, they're, they're small, but they're real, and they're, they're the training ground of where's our contentment right now. God, I pray that we would learn to look for and rejoice in the fact that your purpose for us is to get glory by our depending on you, trusting in you, and looking to Jesus Christ over and over again. And I lastly pray, Father, that this morning you would stir in hearts that are not yet Christians to truly, truly come to Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.